Hey, just a quick note before today's episode. I wanted to let you know that uh, in this episode, I discuss the loss of two pets, which is something that just happened to me recently. And I wanted to let you know that just in case today you might not be in the mood to hear about that. It's certainly not the totality of the discussion. It's actually a very small part of it, but it is near the beginning. And it's something that happened to me recently. I wanted to talk about it, um, but I also wanted to let you know just in case today is not exactly the day that you want to hear about that. Okay. We can start the episode now. It's the Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Thank you so much for coming back. My guest this week is Stacey Horn, an author and journalist who has written a number of books, but one specific book that had a huge impact on me. It was called Cyberville. And in it, Stacey explored an online community that she created called Echo, short for East Coast Hangout. And what Echo was, was a command line, text-only, Telnet-accessed bulletin board slash forum where a distinct set of peculiar people met and talked and debated and became friends and became frenemies and became enemies. And uh, it was a specific moment in time. And the vision of it was so interesting to me that I joined Echo after reading the book Cyberville. And that was in 1999. Uh, which is just a long way of saying that I have known Stacy Horn for almost 25 years, but have never actually talked to her until this interview for The Chris Gray Show. I wanted to talk to her about her work, throughout which I think a thread of connection and empathy runs throughout. You know, I think someone who builds an online community must be interested in how people connect and the ways that that works and the ways that it breaks down. And I also wanted to hear her perspective as someone who really was a pioneer in early social media, what it's like to take in the landscape of what social media has become in 2023. It's such a distant cry from places like Echo and The Well and even the old bulletin boards that I used to log into as a kid. I did want to know what it's like being someone who's sort of helped start this kind of journey and to see where it has ended up, which is probably not where anybody really expected or wanted it to end up. Anyway, uh, I will be rambling about my personal life after the interview, but in the meantime, please enjoy my discussion with Stacey Horn. Stacey, it's so nice to have you on the Chris Grace Show. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, so Stacey and I have known each other digitally for a long time, but this is our first time actually having like a real conversation. <laughs> um, but Stacey's an author. Yeah, I mean, you've written such, um, I want to say it's like an eclectic slate of books. Um, it is. Because it is. looking at the books that you've written, it's not like I can predict what the next book is going to be about. You know, that's true, but... Every book in one way or another has led to the next, even if the topics are entirely different. And they are all they are all morbid in one way or another, even if I tried to get away from that. <laughs> and they all led to the book that I'm writing now. I would connect them. There is certainly a morbidity that connects them. <laughs> um, but I would also connect to, you know, I was sort of going over um, the ones that I've read. I've read Cyberville. And I've read Imperfect Harmony. Um, and 
even looking at the other ones, I've also ordered recently. Uh, I've ordered the book "Waiting for My Cats to Die." Thank you. Because uh, recently, my both of my cats died. Um, oh my, wait! Explain that. That's terrible. Well, I've had them both for 19 years, and my pet Corny, who was sort of the like robust one, the one that we were always like, "Well, he'll live forever." And then our other cat Peanut, she was. She has seemed like a geriatric cat for a while, whereas Corny seemed like this. I honestly seemed like a kitten until like a month ago. So mm. he was very strong and jumping around. Like, and so, you know what I mean? Like you have one cat that's kind of like this cat is, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, but he sort of had these complications with his kidney and stuff very quickly and passed away. And then we we're so like, okay, well now we have peanut. And literally the next day peanut had breathing issues and, we were bringing her to the animal hospital and she died on the way in my arms. Oh my um, so it's pretty mm. awful. I mean, like it was very, honestly, I feel grateful that I got to be there for both of them when they passed away. Like it was, there was something in a way it's like, you can't ask for much more from a pet relationship because they both lived 19 years the, That's the, a really long time. Yeah. And the time from when they were a functioning cat to when they passed away was maybe like for Corny was maybe like three weeks. And for Peanut it was literally like 24 hours. <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. So, I mean, in a morbid way, like that is about as good as you can ask for in terms of a life, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't want the like years of like. I never get, I had to give peanut medication ever, except for like she had a cold or something once, but like there was not a long extended period of like caretaking with these cats. No, you're really lucky to have missed that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, but the, I was going to say the connecting thread that I've seen in the books that, uh, first of all, have had a huge influence on me, but, um, the connecting thread for me has been empathy. Like, I feel like there's a lot of empathy woven into your books, um, and as I don't know, like maybe that goes hand in hand with the morbidity. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. You know, I, I, I think of myself as like writing is always a challenge to me. I mean, it, it's similar to Echo. The whole time I was like starting Echo and making decisions about Echo, the thing in the back of my mind at all time was what decision will cause the least amount of harm to the fewest number of people? And when I'm writing a book, I'm always thinking about who might be hurt by something that I've written. And, and I, I, I work that into the book. I, I do think about it. Like I wrote a book called The Restless Sleep, which was about the NYPD's cold case squad. And they go back and try to solve old unsolved homicides. And one of the homicides that I wrote about was about a young girl who was murdered. Oh, God, I forget how old she was, but like 12, 13 in that area. And I interviewed the father. You know, it was one of the hardest interviews I've ever done. And he was completely broken by it. And as I was writing this section about her, I'm thinking, the family can't read this. I don't want them to read this. And so I contacted the father and I said, don't read my book. Mm. And he said, well, my wife won't, but I'm going to. So I'm writing that chapter knowing this. And I am, I had luckily came across this study at the same time. Um, 
I can't remember who wrote it, but I, I it was a, a group of medical examiners, um, pe- people who do autopsies. And I, I no longer remember the specifics, but as a result of their work, um, they said that people who die violently and quickly uh, don't suffer. Mm. It happens too quickly for them, for, for the body to feel pain and for the brain to register fright. Um, and so I put that in the chapter about his daughter um, to, to communicate to him that she did not suffer. Hmm. Uh, did you hear ever hear from him after? I did. And uh, it was positive. Um, and the I heard from her younger sister, I, which was a surprise to me. I didn't speak to her. Um, and she wrote me a thank you letter um, because I did my best to learn what I could um, about uh the girl, Christine Diefenbach, um, to learn what she was like and to describe her so that (laughs) this may be sound cruel, but I wanted people to understand and feel her loss in a way that the family did, that this wonderful person was no longer with us. And so the sister thanked me because she said that her sister had died while she was still very young and she never really got to know her well. And she felt that she did know her better after reading my book. Yeah, I mean, how much of your thought process when you're creating – you're essentially kind of creating these worlds um, that you kind of have to get the reader a little bit attached to before you can sort of talk about why – the impact of those worlds, you know? Yeah. Like I feel like in Imperfect Harmony, there's a, there's a, a certain amount of work you have to do to bring someone into the – feeling the communal – the community part of the being in the choir – yeah. And is that something that you think about consciously in terms of or I, honestly, my reaction as a sometimes creator, sometimes writer is also like, does it get exhausting or repetitive to feel like, OK, I have to like build this thing, <laughs> get, get them in and then say what I want to say? Um, it's stressful. You know, I, I'll, I have a crisis of confidence every time that I'm going to be able to pull it off. But I. I don't get tired of it. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Like once I'm beyond the blank page, like I've started, it's fun, but stressful, but fun. Um, the only thing I can think of is, is with every book, I always feel inadequate. Like I always feel like, Oh God, I wish I had like with imperfect harmony. I, I, I mean, I could talk about music from a, uh, an amateur singer's point of view, but I really wish that I had a degree in music when I wrote that. So I, I could just speak more eloquently about the entire history of music and theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I did research and put that in there. Well, a perfect example is I interviewed, um, Morton Lordson about um, his piece of music, Oh Magnum Mysterium, mm. which is one of my favorite pieces of music to sing. And I interviewed him, and he just seemed annoyed <laughs> the entire time by my questions. And, and I was terrified um, about his chapter because it was very important to me um, 
um, because of the way I structured that chapter, I, I tied it into um, a fellow choir member who lost a pet at mm. the same time that we were singing this song, uh, this piece of music. And so talk about world creating and, and, and morbidity and, and pet loss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I was wrapping this all together, and it meant a lot to me to get it right. It just was so important to me to get it right for for the the, the piece of music which I valued, for the grief that my fellow choir member was going through, which I respected. And after the book came out, I got... Um, email from Lauritsen saying he loved it. Oh. He showing it to all his friends and making okay. it available. So maybe he's just a, has a resting annoyed personality. <laughs> or I was asking annoying questions and he, <laughs> and he couldn't tell where I was going with it all, but yeah. it all worked out. Yeah. Um, when you're a sort of mid process on these books, how much of your work is sort of generative and how much is research and how much is interviews or is it all three or, I mean, I'm sure it's different from book to book, but. It's different from book to book, but frequently um, I'm writing about things where the people I really need to talk to are dead. Hmm. Uh, so you're going out to Long Island to see mediums and psychics and. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> You know I wrote a book about that, right? I wrote I wrote a book about the former Duke Parapsychology Laboratory. No, I don't I don't know. Wait, what is this book called? I must have missed this in my research. <laughs> it's called Unbelievable. Okay. Um, but Duke University had a parapsychology laboratory. This was such a fun book to research, but um, <laughs> They had a lab um, where the mission of the lab was to see if they could use the scientific method to find evidence for life after death. <laughs> um, I know it sounds funny, but it was it was a different time, and it was weirdly science had a much more open mind about this question mm -hmm. than it does now. Um, and so it was it was it was interesting and brave and exciting that they were actually doing this. I mean, this is a whole conversation in and of itself. I'm a skeptic. I mean, I love everything to do with the paranormal stories, ghost stories, but I don't really believe any of it. Um, and so anyway, so they, they spend about 30 years doing this. I went down to Duke University to, you know, research the lab and what they did. And I was expecting, you know, boxes and boxes of ghost stories. That's, that was my vi vision, my idea of what parapsychology meant. So I, I start opening boxes and it's just pages and pages of math and statistics. <laughs> and like, I'm terrible in math, never took a class in statistics. I had no idea what I was looking at. And so I requested different boxes. I requested the boxes of correspondence. And in the process of reading letters from the Duke scientists and other scientists, I 
gained a picture of what actually happened. And I can just tell you briefly, so they had this mission um, to see um, if there was life after death. And they just started with mediums to see, you know, are they all, you know, con men and women or is there something, you know, they have a way of accessing information that we don't know about. And so they designed these experiments to test these mediums. Um, they tried to make it as rigid and error-free. So what they did was they would have a subject that the medium was supposed to be reading, but that person was in another room. So they couldn't do that thing where they got cues from the subject um, either by – Like a cold, cold reading type stuff or – Exactly. Yeah. So the person was in the other room, and they did this a bunch of times, and they found, surprisingly, that the mediums were still getting a lot of things right. Um, it was all very, you know, raw, like they hadn't developed, you know, ironclad experiments, but it led them to believe there is a possibility that there's a way of accessing information that we don't know about or understand. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they're getting the information from dead people, they realized. You know, so, yes, they know these things. We don't know how they know them, but it doesn't mean they're, you know, just talking to ghosts. Right. So they came, that's when they came up with the experiment um, that most people are um, at least somewhat familiar with, those ESP cards. They were in the movie Ghostbusters. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, they, this originated from the Duke Lab? Yeah. They started, they started with regular playing cards and, they, and Duke students, Duke University students, to see if, you know, they could tell them, you know, what card they were holding up without seeing them. But they found that people were too familiar with these decks and they would just pick cards that were their favorite cards. Like they kept start with like the Ace of Spades or the King of Hearts. So they designed their own deck. So it was another guy, um, Zener, um, a psychologist in the psychology department who designed that deck. And they and so they designed experiments and they eventually got it that they used tighter and tighter controls. So the subject was in another building entirely. Um, and the, the scientist conducting the experiment um, was, it, it was double blind. So he, even he did not know what cards were being turned over. And they found that um, a number of students were able to tell them um, what um, designs were on those cards to a statistically significant degree. And that's what launched. That's that's they took it from there. Well, that's fascinating because uh, I, as a hobbyist magician, I'm very familiar with those ESP cards because they come up in lots and lots of magic. There's I have like three sets of those cards that are like gaffed or marked in a certain way. Um, <laughs> well, their experiments, you know, accounted for that. But uh, there was one really terrible. Like in the beginning, um, they were um, partnered with. Um, a radio station to promote um, this show that they were doing on the lab produced, or was it a game company? Now I forget, but a certain, somebody produced a bunch of cards for them and they didn't use these cards for the experiment. They gave them away and it was discovered that the cards were semi-transparent. So, <laughs> okay. so a subject could read what card you had in your hand. Um, and so this um, B.F. Skinner, 
who's a famous psychologist, he was at Harvard. He, he discovered that these cards are transparent. And so he used this to absolutely humiliate the lab, you know, showing how his students could all read all the cards. Uh-huh. And he wrote Ryan this. And Ryan said, yeah, we know. We don't use those cards for our experiments. But Skinner never, like, took it back. Like, he wrote a paper about it, told all students about it, and, and neglected to say but the, the lab were not using these cards. Well, I mean, that's uh, the whole thing of, like, corrections and people following up, you know, where people will say – it seems like a very common phenomenon these days of – I say something outlandish to get attention, and then when I'm corrected, I will maybe put up one tweet about it. But I will not. I will not as prominently correct myself as I. But it yeah. changed my whole very naive point of view about people of science. Like I always think think of them as more rational, right? Um, than me. <laughs> and when I read the letters going back and forth between them and the lab, it's like they were hysterical and emotional and <laughs> and insulting and not at all rational. <laughs> and I thought, okay, they're human, but it was heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's another thing too, is that I found over the last couple of years is that people have a certain, you know, somebody like Richard Dawkins, who I will see, a clip of speaking about something very eloquently. And I find him very persuasive in certain ways will then be just like so petty and (laughs) just like very um, reactive in very non rational ways on certain topics when he's challenged in a certain way, you know, a lot of people that, and, and I guess lately I just feel like, you know what, let me just take the value I can take out of, Richard Dawkins and also accept that he was just, you know, just like everybody else, an emotional, sometimes angry person. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. You, yeah. you have to. I want to highlight something um, from Imperfect Harmony, which I just thought was so um, – I resonated with me very much. Per, pardon me if I'm about to read back your writing to you just briefly. But I just love this little quote that um, – so Imperfect Harmony is about you – uh, decided to sing with an amateur choir at a church in New York City. And um, I think at first you didn't realize that you had to audition for it. I didn't. Um, right. <clears throat> so, and you had had a previous uh, bad experience auditioning, I think for Bye Bye Birdie, where you yes. had, had sung off pitch and it yes. didn't go well. So then you found out you had to audition for this amateur choir, which I mean, I which actually makes sense. Like sometimes there's a lot of amateur efforts where you don't have to audition. Like it's just like, hey, yeah. we're putting on a play. Whoever wants to help with this community play, sign up for it. Um, so then you find out you, you had to audition. You thought about not doing it at all. <laughs> and then you went to the audition and this is what you said. And I'm quoting from the book now. It says, uh, I can't sing very well. I blurted out saying what I had wanted to say all those years ago at my high school audition. I mean, I'm not awful or anything, but I know I'm not great either. Okay, not great at all, but I sing in tune and I don't sing very loud. So even if I make a mistake, I won't mess up anyone around me. But apparently in auditions, I go flat. So if that happens, could you please take my word for it that I can actually sing in tune? I'm not lying, I promise. I love this quote so much because I tend to go flat when I sing. Um, and so so sometimes when I sing, I will go flat and I can't hear it. Um, so... Which obviously is not great for harmonies. <laughs> um, but I had an experience in college because I was in a college drama program where I was in a musical. And it wasn't until 
we graduated college and me and my friends were driving from North Carolina to New York City to move to New York City to be actors. We popped in a cassette tape of of a, you know, like a field record, not, you know, like not an official recording of the show, listening to my song. And I sang flat at the end of the song. And I was so mortified, like the entire run of the show had happened and I was <laughs> flat on this run. Anyway, I just want to, I love this highlight, but like, I love that, the vulnerability of you saying that right before your audition. <laughs> he was a sweet man. Yes. And then you did get in and then he said, it's true. You don't have a pretty voice, but your pitch is solid. <laughs> um, that was a miracle. What I, when when I was reading this book, I was thinking that um, I think it seems like there's an element of singing that you you have to be in concord with another person to sing with them. So, like just physically, you have to be doing something that is, you know, not in the musical sense, but like har in harmony with what they're doing. So it's almost like a way of like you can't really be arguing about politics or anything when you're singing with something and, and what, what has that changed about your sense of like empathy and connection with people? You know, you bring up such an important point. I don't know if I brought this up in this, the book because maybe I read it after the book came out, but a woman, and I wish I could remember her name, wrote a paper. If Congress were a choir mm. and she was talking about the fact that, you know, when you are singing with other people, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, if, you know, if you've never sung in harmony, I, it's very hard to communicate this, but it's just really the, the best feeling in the world. There's like maybe one thing in the world that's equal to it. You're not thinking about anything like in terms of what are the politics of the person next to you or, 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 or anything about race, religion, any, anything that might get in the way. Um, of being completely connected to another human being, any biases or prejudices you might have, you just want to make that feeling continue and you'll do whatever it takes. It's, it's not the only thing in the world like this, but it does remind you that, and it's speaking about like what we were talking about, where, what your story with Richard Dawkins before, like, even good people have a terrible side and even terrible people have a good side. So it, I would like to think that it opens up empathy in all of us at least just a little bit. And it, that was the point that this woman was making um, in the book, uh, in her paper, um, if Congress were a choir. Because once you had that connection to another human being, it makes it harder to hate them. <laughs> so she was saying it, it's possible if Congress sang together like this, they might be able to talk to each other. It might improve their discourse. It might make it more possible for them to, to compromise and reach a middle ground. So I mentioned before that your books have influenced me a lot, I, but one of your books specifically, like, physically changed my life. Like right after reading the book Cyberville, um, I joined what you had mentioned before. You started a company called Echo. Um, and it's interesting because around that time, I think I joined The Well around the same time. So I was in New York City. The Well is a online, 
originally like a bulletin board type. I would describe them both as sort of like forum style bulletin boards. Um, they're social media communities, but not in the current sense. Like they're not as, uh, honestly, they're not as like um, viscerally like moment to moment hostile as a lot of current social media is. Um, they, are, from- they are, they are social media. It's just, yeah. The communication online has changed. Yeah. So when, so I was, I think on the well and echo around the same time. And I believe I ended up staying on echo cause I was living in New York city. The well is a very West coast focused experience. And so there's a, there's a lot of people like at that time talking about like things more important about like San Francisco and that, that sort of, uh, the well feels more connected to like the tech industry. Um, but, uh, I would say they both sort of felt like they grew out of a sense of social media connecting people through conversations in a way that – I mean certainly they both have their share of drama or arguments or whatever. But they don't seem uh, – they weren't like incentivized by like let's piss our users off so that they have to engage with it. Um, no, and that no, almost no, feels, no, like, an, that feels like an old-fashioned way of looking at social media. Um but so I've been a member of Echo ever since then. So I, I didn't even remember what year that book came out. But like I've been on Echo for like a long time. Um, 1998, and, I think. Yeah. And I was certainly on it a lot more when I had a day job where Echo was a perfect way to kill time <laughs> <laughs> at a day job that had internet access. Um, yeah. But I've always been curious about what it's been like for you to see other social media things pop up. And certainly a lot of current social media is incentivized by like anger and engagement. And how does it feel like, I mean, do you have thoughts about the way it's gone? Cause it didn't really go the way the well and echo were going. No, no. I mean, we were trying to achieve the opposite. Um, We were trying to mediate dispute. Um, we were trying to be the choir of social media and find a place where even if people disagreed, they could communicate civilly. I find it so depressing when I see what is going on. And it, like for here, like with Echo, one of the things I did very early on was I wouldn't allow people to be anonymous because I thought, if they knew their name was going to be appear with whatever they said and people knew who was saying what, they would be more careful and more civil. And they were because it was a different world. Now people are, again, they've learned that it's perfectly okay to say horrible things and to express these horrible views. It's okay to be racist. It's okay to be this, that, and the other thing. And there's there's no push there's not enough pushback against that. My relationship to the conversations on Echo has been so interesting to me because I was very I was on it a lot for a little while and then I was sort of fell off of it. I've been checking in recently and it's it's been actually very fun for me to like go back and look at old messages that I had with people, old conversations. It, it's been fascinating. I, I actually love it. I love a lot of the time capsule nature of it. Um, I also wonder what, what, how have you felt like it's very 
poignant to me to be on Echo and seeing messages from people that are like, you know, so-and-so has passed away. And it is a, as a community, it's an aging community. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have been struck by the poignancy of that and like the, the still wanting to engage with it as opposed to like a lot of current social media is about like the vibrancy of youth, you know, <laughs> I don't know. How does that feel to you to be sort of part of that? Well, it's it, it, what you describe. It's similar for me. I, it, it's poignant. I mean, and I'm very much of that aging group. I'm 66 and I feel like from time to time, one of us gets sick and, and we talk about how to respond. We send them gifts, you know, we, we help take care of them and then we say goodbye. And the rest of Echo's days are going to be filled with that because we are all getting older. So I'm glad that we're there for that. And Yeah, I'm glad that we're there for that. And unfortunately, at a certain point, I um, got more involved with writing books than running Echo, and I stopped trying to market it. I mean, I did, I haven't done anything for decades to get new people online. And even if I did, like there was a book that was written about um, women um, and the Internet called Broadband, and there's a chapter on me. So I've gotten a lot of people trying to open accounts to get on Echo. But I don't even bother sending them what they need because we still use the same exact software that I picked out for Echo in the 1980s. It's all text-based. You have to learn commands. And no one is willing to do that anymore. And I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. So we will forever be an aging community because there are not young people coming in to take our place. I kind of wonder though, if that's a more organic way of having a community in the sense that like, this is what this, this um, like specific number of people related to each other through this one community. And then like this community doesn't have to be infinite. It's right. like a thing that served this group of people and then it will stop in the sense that like, maybe this is more like real life, you know? No, absolutely. I've thought that too. Yeah. Like it's not the end of the world. Um, and then uh, somebody who's 20 or 30 now maybe will have their version. You know, I, I do hope for them that they have a version that allows them to make connections that I, I think were made through echo and the well, um, because I think there are more – like, there's people on the Echo that have been – I mean, some of these friendships are, like, 30 years, 30, 40. Like, it's, it's – Oh, yeah. If you go on Facebook, all the former Echo people are still friends on with each other on Facebook. They yeah. just moved the place where they're hanging out. I also uh, – I, I, I am slightly, I guess, bemused – and I, I find it sort of charming, the fact that, like, I can go into Echo and there are people still having feuds that are like, um, <laughs> they seem they seem like they're in their teens, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I just think that's like kind of charming in the sense that like, wow, people are really invested in each other. <laughs> I know, I know. It never ends. I mean, I'm I sure that's a headache it. for you, but. It is a headache. I, oh, God. It, there's an ongoing thing. And I, I just, you know, at one point I started a topic in the Central, which is the main conference on Echo, where people gather. And I said, that's it. I'm throwing in the towel. You know, I'm not going to shut it down. I'm just, I'll figure out something, you know, give it to some, put somebody else to run. Right, 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 right. It's also funny because the, uh, like, the, the you know, I would say, like, the young guns of Echo are the people – <laughs> like me that are like almost 50 years old and <laughs> it's and, true and uh first of all there's no, you know it on echo you sort of practice grief in a way because you go through these uh decade bound age conferences that are like tw- <laughs> under 20 under or not under 20 but under 30 under 40 you know like there's and then once you turn 30 you like have to leave the 20s and so you kind of have this progression of like, okay, I guess I'm not participating in this anymore. I'm, I'm sort of dying from this little <laughs> UPF forum, right? Um, and I was really, I essentially like missed the entire 40s forum. <laughs> I have like about six months to participate in the 40s forum. And, and there's only like two people in it anyway. <laughs> I, I'm surprised that there's anyone. Uh, yeah, I'm not even sure if there's anyone in it. Um, but it's funny because some of the other young people that are like, oh, you know, one of the people that helped architect the tech of Echo was like, oh, he's the young kid of Echo. And he's like, he is, yeah. you know, he's not a kid. Yeah, yeah. He has um, a kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, like I found the the experience of it. I, I, and I guess this is what I would connect to your your books is. Uh, the, I think the most the feeling I get the most from your work is like a, just a feeling of like, this is such a like vaguely articulated thing. But what you were saying about BF Skinner is just like, he is a human being. And that is kind of what I get from echo. And I get from the work as well. It's just like, I feel like you, I, and I don't know this conscious. I feel like you're trying to sort of continually reassert, like we're human beings and we should be, yeah. we should connect to each other as human beings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You wrote a very um, pretty harrowing book uh, about Blackwell Island um, yeah. in New York oh, City uh, called Damnation Island. That was in uh, 2018, I think. And also, again, there, like, I felt a sense of um, morbidity for sure. <laughs> um, but also, there is something in, I think, your authorial voice that I find to be sort of explorative as opposed to judgmental. Um, Maybe that's the upside to not knowing anything about what you're writing about. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you don't feel like you have the authority to be judgmental about things. Well, no, because I'm literally writing about something I'm just learning about. So it would be from the point of view of exploring. Yeah. Do you uh, – you talked before about feeling – like insecure about some of these topics, I guess is part, do you ever feel like, okay, I'm researching Blackwall Island. I'm talking about music. Do you ever feel like, Oh, I might run into someone who like is an expert in these things and will say like, I'm all wrong about. This oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, 
That's my big fear every single time. And that's uh-huh. some, so I, I write that. That's maybe that's why I, I research so thoroughly to to circumvent that possibility. But when I wrote um, Damnation Island, I was like, oh God, I wish I had a PhD in public health and a PhD in criminal justice and and so many because the book I, I didn't know like. I originally um, had planned to write, I'd hoped to write a book about the municipal archives. That's where a lot of the city's historical, New York City's historical records are kept. Um, A lot of my books had taken me there for one reason or another, and it's a wonderful place. It's like, it's, it's like the end of Raiders of a Lost Ark. There's Mm. just all these collections and you go there to look up, one thing you end up like getting sidetracked by a million interesting stories that you come across in the pr- process of researching that one thing. So I wanted to write a book that communicated that, like what a fun place it is. And it, just to, for no reason, just go there and start looking around. You have a great time. You'll get lost. It's like going down the rabbit hole on the internet, but this is with paper records. And uh, so I wrote a proposal, you know, and I took samples from the collections and showed how that happened. And my publisher was most intrigued by a small section about Blackwell's Island. And they said, well, why don't you just write about Blackwell's Island? And I thought, oh, my God, that actually does sound fun. But I had no Blackwell's Island is what Roosevelt Island in New York was called in the 19th century. Uh, I had no idea what went on there. I, I just had a vague sense that it was not good. So when I started writing the book, um, that's when I learned that the city had bought it to build replacement institutions for um, institutions that were in New York and were overcrowded and inhumane. So they built what they called at the time a lunatic asylum, hospitals for the poor, um, an almshouse, like a, a, a resting, I, I, I don't know what you would call it, a, a resting home for um, elderly poor. It was all for poor people, like what, all the poor people they didn't want to deal with. Even the, the, the two prisons, which should have been for everyone, not just poor people, ended up just being for poor people. And I got a whole education about the evolution of the injustices of our criminal justice system. Um, And it was all bad. It was just all bad. People suffered. They suffered needlessly. Even the the prison wardens, you know, would write these annual reports trying to get the city to do something about it. They never did. And the whole time I was researching it and writing it, I thought it's there's nothing changed. We're st- doing the same. We're making the same mistakes, doing all the same things today. And I don't even feel like I can judge any of these people because what am I doing? I read mm-hmm. terrible things every day. And what am I doing about it? Nothing or little. Well, I mean, you also brought a lot of that to light, which a lot of people, have, you know, learned about that island in ways that I don't think they had before. Um, and also the fact that it was so – it felt – it seemed like it was so brutal for uh, – you know, as an expression of um, treatment of the poor, but also the uh, the treatment of poor women and children um, specifically, I think that was uh, – and also illuminating in a way because there's a lot of New Yorkers who just kind of see that island a lot, like – 
you know, that there's a, I think there's um something fascinating about something you see a lot in your everyday day, day life. And you're like, I, I don't know what the history of that place is. Um, and to, and to feel like, Oh, I've had the physical structure of this place where like a lot of terrible things happened just in my day to day. And I'm just kind of like, well, this is my commute, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you're working on a new project, which I'm not going to ask you about. Um, <laughs> Cause uh, <laughs> Because you can't say anything about it. But um, well, I can uh, say one thing. Like okay. there was an announcement in Publishers Lunch about it, and they described it as the color of law meets the wire. Okay. Very interesting. Do you have a sort of codified way of working through these books? Do you feel like do you get a sense of like, okay, I'm a couple months into this process? this is where I should be at this stage kind of thing. Like what's your day to day kind of look like? I'm very stressed all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, My publisher wants this book to come out um, by the summer of 2024. And which means I have to hand it in next September. And the way I always work is I do the research up front as much as I possibly can. And this book that I'm working on now involves more research than any other book. And eventually I have to start writing it, which I have. But as you, I'm sure, know, when you start writing something, um, you see, oh, well, I should have looked into that. I should have asked this person that. I mean, it isn't until you actually write the thing that you realize all the things you need to know. I mean, the research that you've done before is a good start, but it's never all that you need to do. It's just the good start. So that's where I am now, writing um, and researching. But normally when I discover some new avenue of research that I should have done that I have to do, I'd be thrilled. It's like, oh, good, more research. I love it. I, I love nothing better than going to an archive and opening up some old boxes that nobody else has for decades. It's my favorite thing in the world. But now I, I feel stressed about it because I have a very limited amount of time to write this book. Mm-hmm. I'm, I can do it. Like I've plotted the whole thing out. I can do it. It's just going to be tight. Uh, just from a like a pragmatic point of view, when you if you go to like municipal archives and you're looking through an old book, and you and you find stuff you want to use, is this a you've got a paper notebook and you're taking notes? You've got a laptop, or is there a world now where like you can take a cell phone image of a page or something? Or yeah, yeah, that that's that it's so much easier. Yeah, with um, smartphones, like now I've got a scanner on my phone. Um, and, and, and even better. And I only recently discovered this like a year ago. It used to be, you know, I would just scan and it's very quick. It's like, unlike taking a photograph, these scanners just convert everything to a black and white document. And, and now they convert them into readable and searchable PDFs, which is the greatest thing in the because um, you might have scanned like a hundred page document and you need to find one section and, and instead of having to go through all of it, you can search, which is so great. And then uh, at home, do they like live in a big folder on your computer or do you have like a decent way of, do you have an, do you, do you sort of structure your organization of this material 
as it comes in, or are okay. you like? If this is at all interesting. Oh, it's I interesting have... to me. <laughs> okay, when I wrote the rest of sleep, I picked four unsolved murders to write about, and so I had four different timelines of events and what people did and did not do, and I, I had a very hard time organizing that and writing it. So I just developed this thing where I would write from the beginning, establish a timeline for every thread that I knew I was going to write about. And as I found materials, I would add to my timeline, just a reference. Like if you need this, it's here. If you need this, it's here. Or or if I know that I'm going to use a quote, I'd cut and paste and put it in my timeline. And now I always do things that way. Like I establish what threads I'm going to have. I start a timeline. And as I research, I'm building and building and building these timelines. So now for this current book, I have two timelines. And they're like 100 pages each hmm. of references. Well, you're not – I mean, but you're helping yourself in the future by not just sort of dumping them all into a Word document un- unreferenced and just like – the best thing is, is at the end when I have to fact check, it makes my life a lot easier. I can go check wherever I got things, make sure I got it right, that sort of thing. And I can prove where I got things. Cool. Uh, and does the, does the new project have a name or it's just... Well, the, it does, Like, but it's just a placeholder. I, I hope it's not the name, but it's called The Killing Fields of East New York. And I can say, because it's in that announcement, that I'm writing about a white-collar crime, and I'm tying it to the very large number of unsolved murders in East New York. Okay. That, so uh, we should look out for that in 2024. <laughs> um, uh, you know, this is just irrelevant to the author life. Something I learned recently was, uh, I, I would, I'm curious what your experience with this is, is I didn't realize that uh, writers had to do so much promotional work on their own um, in terms of like book tours and that kind of stuff. I, I honestly, if you had asked me what it, how it worked, I would think like you get a publisher and then you go, what cities do you want to go to? And they like send an email to all the bookstores you want to do readings at and you show up and do them. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's probably what a lot of people think. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah. The self promotion is, uh, is, painful yeah well we have to come back to us when you when this book is coming out we'll try to do some promotion for you (laughs) thank you uh but stacy thank you so much for being on the show it's really like being on echo has been a like a significant factor in my like in my life like honestly i think part of it was in my 20s being in regular conversation with people that were older than me, I think changed the way I related to people. Um, and uh, although now it seems like I'm more mature than some of the people still in Echo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I mean, but it really was like a, it was, it was, uh, I mean, it felt a little bit like getting to be at a party with the adults, yeah. you know? Um and so it's been a major factor in life. And so, and obviously that was all because of you and your book, Cyberville, which is still a great read. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. Uh, and I really, I, I love, uh, well, I haven't read Waiting for My Cats to Die. That's on its way. Uh, but I definitely recommend people read Imperfect Harmony. It's such a, 
I, I mean, probably as relevant now in terms of people feeling a need for connection. And also, uh, it uh, it does make you want to join a choir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and Dan Manish and all as well. But then in 2024, we're going to buy this new book as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to my interview with Stacey Horn. I took the liberty of putting some music into today's episode. Uh, the first one was O Magnum Mysterium by the Nordic Chamber Choir. Uh, in the middle, we had Memoranda by Dylan Chan, which was sung by the Choral Society of Grace Church, which is actually the choir that Stacey was a member of. And then this is, uh, well, A Hymn to the Virgin by Benjamin Britten. You know, in tribute to me. All... Pure as the driven snow. Anyway, um, I hope you're having a good week. Uh, I am going to San Francisco this coming weekend to do a corporate gig, but also excited to see a production of um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet at a company called the Shotgun Players in, I think, Berkeley-ish area, Emeryville-type region. Be seeing that this weekend. Um, got to see one of my heroes, Jimmy Pardo, do stand-up last week, which was great. Uh, then got to see a live a recording of his podcast, Never Not Funny, at Flappers uh, last night, actually. It was really fun. And uh, all in all, um, things continue apace with my solo show for the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, if you're in the community we created, club.chrisgrace.com, I actually posted my proposed budget for the show. And uh, I do want to actually kind of let people in on the whole process of bringing a solo show to Edinburgh this year. And um, I probably will be putting some of that behind a paywall. <laughs> Honestly, if the, the more sort of like detailed it gets, I think the more I want to put some sort of barrier between like the general public and that kind of thing as details get more real. You know, when we're talking about people actually spending money and, and how much I'm paying for things and stuff, I don't know. I just feel like I want a, even a modicum of, you know, you have to click two extra times to see that stuff. Uh, but I also, it is the kind of stuff that I would have been, I mean, I would love to have someone's full process of how they brought a solo comedy show to Edinburgh in front of me right now so that I could use it as a template. So I hope by kind of opening up the process to you and anyone else interested that it might uh, help people going in the future or even going this year. What the heck? Um, and uh, besides that, oh, Good news, uh, I'll just let you know. Good news on our side at the, at the house. Uh, my husband, Eric, had a good scan, as they say. Uh, in case you don't know, Eric has uh, treatments ongoing for um, a form of renal cell carcinoma, which is three horrible words you don't ever want to hear. But uh, he, once a month, gets an immunology treatment for that. And uh, then every three or four months, we get a scan and then we get a one of the most nerve-wracking doctor appointments you'd ever have in your life where you just you go in and you're like either the treatments are still working or they're not and you know the the day that they say they're not then it's like we're changing tactics right but uh when they say uh that it's still working then you get four months of um 
not not worrying about it, but you get, it's um, a friend of mine actually who was in a similar situation told me that it's kind of like getting an extra semester of school. It's like, okay, we're, we're not graduating yet. Okay. So we've got, got a good scan for uh, February. And that means we've got another semester of working on our projects, enjoying our life. All of this is something Eric and I call it. We call it bonus time. Everything that we get from this point. We're really, we're really um, conscious of being grateful for everything that we get. Um, and, uh, and yes, uh, I'll just update everybody. I did. We did see last of us episode three <laughs> and um, it was fine. You know, personally, I think that some storylines like that, and first of all, I really I do appreciate people that that liked the storyline because it was a a, a gay storyline that wasn't about uh I don't know it wasn't about <laughs> I mean you know what I was just happy it wasn't them getting AIDS like having sex and getting AIDS <laughs> but I mean because that's just such a thing that always happens right but and I guess people liked I always kind of bristle when people say this when people say. I liked that it was a story where it didn't it was it didn't matter that they were gay or you know they only happened to be gay. I always kind of bristle when I hear that cuz I'm like that's not how I feel about it. You know? I I don't know, but I um, I was also kind of like mixed about it because I think cuz of the things that Eric and I have gone through. Um it's seeing trauma on TV is like you know in a way it can be triggering but also sometimes it's just kind of like eh that's not that big a deal it's like when the tragedies that i've had in my life in the last 10 years um like i used to really love and i still love bell and sebastian i used to like i used to feel so twee and sentimental and and melancholy when i would listen to bell and sebastian and then after a bunch of stuff happened in my life now bell and sebastian is just like eh Y'all are just kids. You don't even really know anything about true heartbreak. <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt about Last of Us. It's like, you know what? That didn't seem like... Didn't seem that traumatic, actually. It seemed like a pretty decent option. All told, from beginning to end. I do want to say... Um, Nick Offerman really captured... A kind of closeted guy having gay sex for the first time. That was kind of unsettlingly accurate, I must say. Um... As someone who has corrupted many a man. <laughs> um, and I, I think I want to give an award to Murray Bartlett for being, maybe having the best gay acting career of all time. And by that I mean an actor who has had a significant number of roles where he is playing an out gay man that is a full human being. I actually don't know who else has done it as often as he has. He was in Looking. He was great in that. Um, White Lotus. He's in Chippendales. He's in this. He's just turning up all over the place as like an uh, as just a regular old out gay man, confident. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's actually that actually. I mean, it's a shame, but like that doesn't happen that often. He has a really great career, and uh, I just I'm really impressed with him every time I see him. I guess I liked that episode more than I thought. Uh, I guess I just, I just people prepared me for it to be like, oh my gosh, this is the most devastating thing I've ever seen. It's like, oh no, it was, it was quite good. Um, although, you know, just personally, I've had, I, 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 I don't know how many more zombie things I need to see in my life. All right. Uh, listen, I hope you have a good week. I hope you get some good sleep. 
I hope you create something exciting for yourself. And I hope you see a friend. And you'll be hearing from me very soon. You've been listening to The Chris Gray Show. Today's episode was edited by Eric Michaud. The opening music is Easy Cooking by Boom Opera. And this is Chinese Hip Hop by Alexander Brewfire. We also had selections from O Magnum Mysterium, as performed by the Nordic Chamber Choir, Memorandum by Dylan Chan, and A Hymn to the Virgin by Benjamin Britten, both performed by the Choral Society of Grace Church. You can email us at podcast at chrisgrace.com or join the community at club.chrisgrace.com. It's The Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Thank you very much for listening.